The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back. You are joining the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great coming back to you every Thursday from 3 to 4 here on the Leslie Marshall Show. If you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter at Michelle with one L, Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O, or at Leslie Marshall. My dear uh, American people, (laughs) where can I even begin? Um, This week, and I, you know, we should just basically say from here on out um, is a nonstop ride. So pay attention, take out a piece of paper and get into it because there is going to be a lot of conversation happening here on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're going to try to give you facts, information and decode the latest and greatest happening in Washington, D.C. And around the country. So, just to start this conversation, and, and I'm excited because I have two friends and colleagues. Um, to start it off. But earlier this week, Donald Trump tweeted out that he was holding a news conference on December 15th to announce he'll be leaving his businesses in order to focus on running the country. And that announcement came on the heels of recent questioning on whether or not his business dealings could be a violation of a a clause in the Constitution you have never heard of, the emolument clause. And what that basically means is that no president should receive kind of compensation for their labor or their services, and no person holding any office of profit or trust shall accept any present um, or gifts um, because of that title. So basically, you're saying we also don't want any gifts from any king, prince, or foreign state unless Congress consents. And as we look at Donald Trump and many of his dealings all across the world, there have been real questions raised about his potential conflict of interest. He's also begun to roll out his cabinet picks and to join me and having a conversation about what's happening with his cabinet and on issues of conflict of interest. I'm happy to join in studio with my dear friend Scott Swenson. He is the vice president for communications at Common Cause. You can find him on Twitter at S-B-W-E-N-S-O-N or at Common Cause. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michelle. It's good to be with you. And always happy to have joining us on the show, I think for the first time, Noah Bookbinder. He is the executive director of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. My word, that's hard. (laughs) You can find him on Twitter at Noah, N-O-N. A-H, book binder, B-I-N-D-E-R. Noah, welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. So, Scott, let's go right into your work, because obviously Common Cause is really engaged in doing tons of work in this space. I mean, but you're involved in voting rights, you're involved in campaign finance. Um, but recently you've started to do a lot of work in this kind of conflict of interest space. So so tell our listeners um, who may not be as familiar with some of the work of Common Cause and in particular what you're starting to think about in this space with these recent announcements from Donald Trump. 
Sure. Well, <clears throat> just by way of uh, a quick introduction for those who don't know, Common Cause is a 46-year-old uh, nonpartisan organization uh, that uh, looks at uh, all ranges of democracy reform issues. We uh, famously have been involved in helping uh, to get the Watergate uh, process started. We uh, passed FOIA laws. Uh, we have helped to open up uh, and make government more transparency through sunshine laws. Uh, and so our, uh, our, our whole reason for being is to uh, make government more responsible for the people, to the people. We're about 650,000 members strong across the country in 35 state operations, including the national office here in D.C. Um, as far as what we see in the new administration, um, there are uh, a number of uh, uh, really shocking elements. I should you know, add very quickly that our, our part of our work has always been a watchdog ethics uh, mm -hmm. sort of standard bearer. And so, uh, you know, the unprecedented nature of uh, President-elect Trump's conflicts of interest in his global empire uh, present us with uh, challenges that um, are not going to be uh, uh, met by his children taking over his businesses. Right. Uh, very clearly, we need him to uh, open a true blind trust, liquidate his assets, and get out of business so he can do the business of the country, uh, which is what the people have elected him to do. So, Noah, I want to bring you into this conversation because you similarly have a charter as an organization to really pay attention and look at these issues on ethics. You know, and I made this very sarcastic uh, joke about even kind of the title of your organization, but I think it's interesting that Donald Trump came um, into uh, the campaign saying he was going to clean up, clean up Washington and drain the swamp, and yet we see before he's even in office some real concerns about his work. Uh, that's right. I mean, he he spoke a lot about draining the swamp, about um, bringing uh, ethics to Washington, driving out special interests. Um, what we've seen uh, in, in the short time so far is, uh, I don't even want to say not encouraging, it's really quite quite the opposite. Um, so it starts with his own business interests, as, as, as Scott was getting at. Um, uh, Donald Trump himself uh, and his organization and his family have uh, billions of dollars in business interests around the world. Uh, we don't even know what a lot of them are uh, mm -hmm. because he's, he's, among other things, never disclosed his tax returns uh, or, or a complete accounting of what his business interests are. Um, and the possibility uh, for conflict, for him being motivated by what helps uh, his companies, what helps his own bottom line, what helps his children, um, are uh, being motivated by that rather than what is in the best interest of the American people are, are almost boundless. And you can see uh, tax issues and regulatory issues, environmental issues, certainly foreign policy issues, which could implicate uh, his businesses. And, and we don't want him thinking about that. We want him thinking about what's in the, the, the best uh, interest of the people. And that's before you even get to potential conflicts from cabinet appointees and all the um, uh, corporate types that we're seeing uh, on the transition and, and being uh, announced as appointees. Um, and so, you know, in terms of influence and uh, potential corruption, um, we're seeing a whole lot more than than uh, we'd like to be seeing at, at this very early stage. Well, you know, one of the questions that I have is <clears throat> I we've just never been... Um, a, 
I, I won't say approach, but the American people haven't really had an example of someone whose businesses was so tied to their personal brand, right? So Trump isn't just like a regular businessman. Um, he is, in fact, um, has commercialized his very last name in a way that's very unique and distinct when you're talking about business writ large. And, and just one has to wonder, can he ever really cause the separation between his public persona that one needs to really focus on the issues of the American people? Well, n- n- uh, as long as he re- maintains an ownership stake or his family maintains an ownership stake in the business, is absolutely not. Whether or not once he liquidates or gets out of that uh, uh, ownership level, then uh, whether uh, the companies retain his name and whatever, how that ever works out, that's that's mm-hmm. up on the new owners uh, mm-hmm. to, to deal with. Uh, but uh, I will point out that unless and until he does uh, separate himself in that way, they also become, frankly, uh, national security targets around the world. Mm. Noah. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think you raise a really important point with respect to the brand, uh, particularly internationally. The value of a lot of these Trump properties, these Trump hotels, Trump apartment buildings, um, largely depends on the view that people in those countries have of the Trump name and of That's Donald right. Trump. Um, and so that means that um, if he wants to maximize the value of his properties in India, uh, he's going to be motivated to, um, to to pursue policies that make him popular in India or in you know in countries like where he does have interests like Saudi Arabia or Azerbaijan. Uh, for instance, if there were to be uh, human rights abuses uh, or arms buildups that might be threatening to to American interests. Um, would Donald Trump have an incentive to go easy on those governments because it's important for him to be popular in those countries to maintain his brand value? You know, those, those are kinds of uh, conflicts that that we uh, that we don't want uh, a president to be thinking about. That's right. So That's right. Scott's entirely right that he needs to sell his interest entirely, and then that goes away. So we're going to take a quick break. If you're joining us, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm in studio with Scott Swenson and Noah Bookbinder. When we come back, I also want to talk about kind of who Trump is putting around him. I think policy is personnel every single time. You're listening to Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. We'll be right back after the break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show, coming to you every Thursday from 3 to 4. Always great to be with you. If you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you do, go ahead and give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. I'm back in studio with Scott Swenson. He's Vice President for Communications at Common Cause and Noah Bookbinder, Executive Director, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington. So, 
bef- while we were on break, you know, Scott and I continue the conversation because you can't just stop talking about this issue, particularly for those of us in D.C. because we live it, we drink it. Our local news is the national news. So this is the impact for us is, is so real. Um, but, Scott, you made a good point about what this moment in history is um, and kind of where we go. And I wanted you to kind of just share that with, with some of our listeners. Well, I, I just think it's, um, it's, it's really remarkable, too. I've, I've been in Washington now for <clears throat> 30 years, certainly a student of it longer than that. I'm, I'm ancient. Um, and but he looks so good, <laughs> y'all, okay? And, he keeps it together. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the fact that we are ending the Obama presidency with eight, scandal-free years That's is right. something that I think is so underreported and unnoticed by mm-hmm. the Ameri- and appreciated, frankly, mm-hmm. by the American public. Yeah. A presidency and a president who has held the highest standard in his professional and personal and political lives That's right. um, and has uh, delivered, uh, regardless of what you think of him politically or ideologically, mm-hmm. he has his detractors, that's fine. But you cannot take away from him the highest, highest integrity that he brought to the government service. That's right. And to be walking now, and the reverence he had yes. for this office and the work that he did, yes. uh, and, and 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 to be now faced with a you know a moment where uh, he will be sitting in the background and the uh, uh, Mr. Trump will be with his hand on the Bible, and knowing that there's probably going to be a lawyer in court someplace if we don't get these conflicts situated, that will be filing a suit that moment, and we will be thrust into scandal and constitutional crisis the moment the president-elect Trump on takes his oath, oath of office. On day one. Wow. Noah, so what Where do we? What do the American people do about this? You know, I mean, we're, we're watching it. In some ways, it feels like um, an, an accident waiting to happen, but more importantly, I mean, we are running into serious constitutional questions, and you have to ask, whose side is the incoming president really on? Well, I think that's right. I think I think the thing that the American people have to have to do is start showing that they care about these issues, and they should care about these issues because we do need a president uh, who is making decisions that benefit the American people, not benefiting. Uh, himself or his family or uh, a, a small class of people with the same economic interests that that he has as a billionaire businessman. Um, but I, I think it, in some ways, was disappointing that that so many millions of Americans were willing to uh, give Donald Trump a, a, a pass on mm-hmm. um, on disclosing his financial uh, information, his tax information that would have let us understand more about what these conflicts are, and that it was so hard to get people interested in these conflicts of interest before the election. Well, now uh, he's, uh, he, he's coming into the presidency, and these are real issues. These are really going to affect what he does as president and what happens to our country. And people are going to have to uh, start making it very clear that uh, these conflicts are not acceptable and that if Donald Trump is uh, not prepared to take steps himself to address them, uh, then they expect their their representatives in in Congress to uh, force him to do so. Yeah. Well, you know, the other question is, as we continue to look at who Trump's cabinet picks are, you know, it begs the question, the conflicts that they bring. So, for instance, the education secretary um, has made 
un, you know, I guess we can say billions because she's a billionaire, um, really looking at the privatization of the American public school system in a way that we haven't seen before. And now she has full reign of the education department. I mean, just what what do these picks say thus far to you? Well, it's uh, I, I've been using the term team of billionaires uh, that's coming together in uh, President Trump's. Not team of rivals. Not team, team of, of rivals. Billionaires. No, team of billionaires. And if there's one thing we know about the last uh, you know period of our history is that the one percent isn't particularly empathetic with the rest of the ninety nine percent. So, yeah. and I think we're actually now talking about the you know one tenth of one percent. One here, tenth so. of one percent. So uh, it, you know it is uh, the the Post had an article this morning the uh, you know wealthiest. Uh, uh, cabinet by extraordinary measures uh, ever to come together, and he's not done yet. Um, and the conflicts of interest that uh, he has, and then the, as you stated, up with uh, the, uh, the Secretary of Education nominee and uh, several others, there are just rampant conflicts. And most importantly, um, a, a notion that these people do not have a sense of what it is like to live in America in the 21st century, in the early mm-hmm. part of the 21st century, mm-hmm. as a working class person and what that means when you are charged with governing all of the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, mm-hmm. you know, we, we talk about the conflicts of interest and they, it can sound like a legalistic, uh, right. off, off in Washington, D.C. sort of political argument. The yeah. fact of the matter is these have real impacts on people's lives. That's right. These, will, th- these conflicts, if they're not situated or, or straightened out, if these people act in the way that we think that they're going to in their self-interest, uh, Americans are going to pay for this mm-hmm. uh, uh, in their taxes. Americans are going to pay for this in the cost, consumer costs going up. Uh, there will be real harms in terms of reductions of government services. Uh, this is a, a tidal wave of uh, pain that is about to wash over the country. That's right. So, Noah, I'm going to give you, I can't believe our time is just flying by, but, Noah, I'm going to give you the closing line. Um, where do we go from here? I think that uh, where we go is for uh, watchdog groups like uh, like Crew and like Common Cause, and for uh, the media for shows like this one, and for hopefully the American people, and, and because of them, the Congress uh, to uh, demand accountability, to demand uh, that Donald Trump and all of these nominees, all these millionaire and billionaire nominees. Uh, disclose what their conflicts are, that they That's get right. rid of those conflicts, and that they uh, focus on their jobs, focus on uh, working in the best focus interest of all Focus on the American the people. people. Noah Bookbinder, Scott Swenson, you are great. We'll have to have you back. We'll be right back after the break talking about the future of black leadership in the age of Trump. This is Michelle Jawando on The Leslie Marshall Show. Welcome back. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. Always great to be with you. And I'm excited because I'm back in studio with two friends to the show and a newcomer. But we always we're pretty friendly here on the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, so we always like to do that. So I'm happy to welcome back to the show Lauren Victoria Burke. You can find her on Twitter at LV Burke. Lauren writes about all things Congress and politics on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., writes for 
for every outlet you can think about, she's already done it. So, Lauren, welcome to hey, the show. Thanks for having me. Avis Jones DeWeaver, she is the founder of the Exceptional Leadership Institute for Women and author of How Exceptional Black Women Lead. She's a friend of the show. She's been on. We always love having her. You can find her on Twitter at Sister, S-I-S-T-A-H, Scholar, S-C-H-O-L-A-R. Avis, welcome back. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. And Darren Sands, a newcomer to the Leslie Marshall Show with Michelle Jawando, but we're happy to have him join us. Darren Sands, he's a political reporter at BuzzFeed. You can find him on Twitter at D-A-R-R-E-N-S-A-N-D-S. Darren, welcome to the show. Hey, Michelle. Hey, ladies. Good to be with you. Thanks so much. So, you know, this was a busy week, I think, in Democratic kind of caucus politics. Um, Nancy Pelosi fended off a challenge by the young upstart Tim Ryan to her position of the House Democratic leader. Um, But among those who had some concerns about Pelosi maintaining her position were many members of the Congressional Black Caucus. um, And some of that, and I'm actually quoting from Darren's article, are furious and disappointed by Leader Pelosi's changes to the leadership structure due to what they believe is a lack of appreciation for the black caucus as a voting block and black voters allegiance to the party this also happens the same week and lauren wrote about that earlier this week cedric richmond who has now been elected the youngest one of the youngest chairs in history of the congressional black caucus um in his mid-40s juxtaposed with the leadership of the house democratic caucus that are all in their 70s and you have these conversations and i'll start with you darren to get the ball rolling rolling about looking at this election who were the most consistent voters and yet has the leadership of african americans in the democratic party really been recognized for what it is so tell us a little bit about that article yeah so this has been i think one of the biggest debates even before the election um in democratic politics is this idea of um if the leadership structures the uh, diversity on staff the amount of money that people are spending with black-owned firms, for instance, if all of that is reflected in this idea that, for Democrats, probably the most dependable um, vote that uh, they have every year um, is is the black vote. And it's sort of um, one of the things that I think happens um, in, in movements and in politics generally is that when people are really frustrated over um, something as traumatic as losing a presidential election or or um, just disappointed. Um, little things, small things can sort of become big things, like almost like in a relationship almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that when these sort of changes were um, uh, made uh, by, by, by the leader um, in the House, they saw it as somewhat of a slight and I believe it was on uh, maybe Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday night. Um, there was just a lot of murmuring, especially to me, um, about this. And apparently it got back to um, the leader's office, and they decided to take, you know, Clyburn's um, changes out of Congressman Clyburn's uh, to his position sort of out of this leadership proposal. And so um, it, it sort of it just reflects, I think, um, this, uh, this this sort of tension right now going on about sort of you know which voters did their job and and how do we go forward with making sure that um, you know the the 
black voters are sort of, sort of on the minds of um, these the leaders. Leadership in the, the Democratic Party. Yeah. So, Avis, I know you've been screaming about <laughs> this <laughs> abusive relationship <laughs> for quite some time. Yes, I yeah, have. I yeah. have. And, you know, I, and I would argue that it's not, a, you know, a small thing that's heightened uh, during uh, as a result of this election. I mean, this is a reality that we have been struggling with for decades, yeah. uh, re- really. Uh, and and a, sum- a similar sort of scenario, I think, is sort of playing out in the women's space exactly yep you know where we see for years we see the democratic party and progressive organizations investing millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in trying to seduce this elusive white female suburban voter and time and time again we fall for the okie doke instead of investing in those organizations that understand how to connect with and how to authentically um, marshal the support of that low-hanging fruit in terms of those communities that we know are already always there for us, mm-hmm. particularly black voters and specifically black women voters. Mm-hmm. And so it's frustrating to see, once again, the um, the importance of the black vote and black leadership disrespected uh, mm-hmm. by the Democratic <laughs> Party mm-hmm. uh, in spite of Every time it seems we come uh, out and we come out in spades and every time we find that when it comes for leadership opportunities to be divvied out, when it comes for contracts to be divvied out by the DNC, Hmm. when it comes for investments to be made in organizations, when we talk about getting out the vote efforts during election time, we are somehow the stepchild over and over again. And and it's time for that to end. Honestly, it's time for it to end. And so, Lauren, you know, you've also been writing about this. I mean, what is the deal is this a well, block in the party that they can't just get over what is it can they not see themselves uh they can the see question. themselves they know exactly what they're doing they know exactly where they're targeting the money uh the problem is until the black caucus and other organizations really decide to put a threat out there and say look we're not paying our dues etc and so on you're going to get the same thing hmm. if there's one thing that is clear about the relationship with the democratic party and african-americans is that a lot of the leadership in the Democratic Party view African Americans in a, in a way of, you know, what you can do for us. Mm. You can get the votes out, you can get us in office, but we're not going to actually let you control money or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And just today it was decided finally that Nancy Pelosi, this is going to be an elected position, a DCCC chair, rather than her singularly picking the person, which of course wasn't working. Mm. And under her leadership, uh, They've lost a historic amount of seats, the most in seven decades. You have to have something that the changes most that. The most in seven decades. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea that we should, I think that they, they should have realized this back in 2010 when they lost 63 seats. But the bottom line for African Americans in Congress is that you do have to put a threat out there. You have to put an ultimatum out there. It's not enough to have three-hour meetings that go into 11 o'clock at night like mm-hmm. they did on Tuesday night. That's great. But you got to have a strategy to to. to combat that, that, which is what they were arguing about on Tuesday night. But you've got to implement that. When you've got now, you know, 48, 49, almost 50 people sitting there, you know, one of the members, Alcee Hastings, said to me the other day, look, you know, it was easier when it was 13 people. (laughs) They blocked together with Shirley Chisholm and a few other people and Stokes, and that was it. Now it's, you know, near 50, and now we're we're, we're having these problems figuring out what our strategy is. That's a problem. That's a problem. So let me take a quick caller because we have Ishmael who's on the line from Virginia. Ishmael, welcome to the show. Greetings, Michelle, to you and to your all-star team there. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, I just have, I'm glad you guys are really bringing this issue. Um, What I would like to get your opinion on is that I really think that this election was stolen by the Republicans. And the Republicans (laughs) targeted the African-American vote specifically. You know, by voter oppression, denying people the right to vote, 
you know, Chris Kobach with his interstate cross checklist project where African Americans with the same last name they get crossed off in different states. You know, and, and the Republican never had a plan to deal with that, you know, because the African American are the most important voter block for the Democrats. Right, and the Democrats right. are just not doing anything to address this voter oppression that the Republicans are doing. They're specifically targeting African Americans in, in right. Wisconsin, you know, right. in, 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 in Michigan. So, so if you guys um, um, just kind of talk about that a little yeah. bit. And, no, and, and great, great point. Ishmael, let me let me get it. Avis on that because I think that's a a great question. Yeah, you know, are we addressing the issues that the African American community are saying? Listen, this is an issue in my community. Uh, absolutely not. And right. Ishmael is is hitting the nail directly on the head. This what we saw in in with this presidential election was something that has been trickling down for years. This has been an effort that has been going on by the right for for years uh, as relates to voter disenfranchisement in a number of ways. Everything from felony, felony disenfranchisement uh, to uh, those sort of name matching uh, mm-hmm. issues that he just mentioned, uh, as well as all the voter ID laws, so many things. And we saw the culmination in terms of the loss of the heart of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court recently. And so we have seen this effort go on for years. And quite frankly, we really haven't seen, I don't believe, a very concerted, a very calculated, a very well invested, uh, prioritized pushback on the left. And so to sit here and act like we're surprised when we see, and and let me just say one more thing, even despite all of that, even despite all of that, uh, black turnout the latest numbers that I saw on it was only down 1% from what it was in the previous election. Wow. So just imagine if we didn't have all of those impediments in place, it wouldn't have even been close, it's my belief. Yeah. And so the yeah. fact that the Democratic Party somehow forgets or somehow doesn't prioritize these issues that are gutting the voting rights of American citizens, let's just right. stop for there everybody. first. For everybody, that's right. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Darren and Lauren, I just want want to talk about kind of your role in covering these issues because quite frankly people are afraid to say this what you both have covered this even just this past week and so I want to get into that a little bit Mm -hmm. this is Michelle Jawando the Leslie Marshall show we'll be right back after the break Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. It's great to be with you. I'm back in studio with my guests, Avis Jones, DeWeaver, Lauren, Victoria Burke, and Darren Sands. So, Darren, let me kick off with you because we're having this conversation. Part of the challenge in talking about this is that people don't talk about this. I mean, you know, you're out there, Lauren. uh, We saw something from Sean King yesterday talking about the Senate diversity issues. But writ large, these aren't issues that tend to kind of push their way to the top. Yeah, um, I mean, it, it is, uh, I think, one of the more important things happening right now, you know, and, and, and that's for a number of reasons, and some of them we've already talked about, as you talk about, you know, black voters in this country um, really carrying the Democratic Party in a, in a way that no other real ethnic group can claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have the, the, the sheer size, I think, of 
um, the CBC as a voting block is, is, is something that um, can't be even diminished. You talk, and especially, I mean, you talk about even the Senate now, you have, you're going to have two prominent members of that body who are going to be, you know, vocal in what's going to be a fight against, um, you know, uh, these, some of these nominations, especially um, the nomin- uh, Trump's nomination for attorney general. So mm-hmm. it's something that, um, you, uh, it's, that the media has to push. Uh, it's something that I sort of take a, a personal um, interest in. Yeah. So, I mean, Lauren, what's the deal? I mean, you've worked everywhere from USA Today, Washington Post, mm-hmm. um, but you had to start your own shop to make sure, Politic oh, yeah. 365, well. <laughs> to make sure these issues were covered. Yeah, well, nobody covers, generally speaking, the work that members of, that black members of Congress right. do. They'll cover, you know, something that's negative. Right. <laughs> They'll generally right. cover right. just the right. work that they're doing. Right. But, uh, you know, I think to a large extent, some of this issue of within the party, the problem with them not having the full recognition of the power of black voters, mm. to some extent has to do with the members. You, you do have to make demands. You do have to ask. You do have to say what you want. I'm not sure the members are particularly good at that sometimes. Mm. When I see that thing over the weekend with regard to Cedric Richmond and the issue of Jim Clyburn's assistant leader position, I look at that and say to myself, who cares? Okay. So <laughs> who cares? Who may not be because it was, it's an issue of, you know, uh, Jim Clyburn is the third leader there, and mm-hmm. that assistant leader position was really created for him. Yeah. Uh, and in my view, when we think about some of the problems that, that go on in black communities, this was not a huge issue. Now, yeah. Yeah. you know, they decided to, to go to Pelosi and say, you know, you're, you want to change some stipulations about this position. We don't like that. That's fine. But in the grand scheme of things, right. I don't think right. that was it's, the biggest thing that you should be going right. after, right? right about I mean, there That's are other things point. that, you know, uh, Barbara Lee lost the vice chair position. That was right. a huge thing That's that she lost big, that. By a vote. By one vote. By one vote. By one vote. By and one so, vote. I mean, I'm just saying that I think that the the caucus has to be a little bit better at asserting their the, asserting their power. Yeah. They have more numbers now. They can assert their power a little bit more, and they should do that. Yeah. I think you know one of the weaknesses sometimes I think is that they're not as uh, strident in that way that they can be. Yeah. Pelosi, you know, has been fairly good to them with regard to ranking members and positioning them. But mm-hmm. when it comes to con- who controls the money, mm-hmm. like a D Triple C, who gets those that money when somebody runs for office who's African American? That's right. That you know. Right, exactly right. Exactly right. I need to tell you that. But Avis, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that's an excellent point. Who gets the money? Uh, That's a problem. And to Mm -hmm. me, that's this overarching issue is the reality that we need to face. When we talk about white supremacy, and we've talked about that a lot since the election of Donald Trump, and obviously he has appealed to it with his, I don't even use the term alt-right, with the white supremacist that he has appealed to and specifically appointed uh, to sort of lead his policy efforts. But let's just be real. This is another form of white supremacy when mm. you, that we have on the left where you do not want to provide opportunities for black people to get an equal or at least fair share, representative share, of monetary power or political power mm. or investments or opportunities. Mm. That is a kinder, gentler, perhaps, form of white supremacy. Wow. And we just need to call it out for what it is. Well, we just did it with Michelle Jawanda on the yeah. Leslie Marcher show. Darren, you wanted to chime in in that conversation. No, I, I just think that's a really great point. And and, and when you when we are having these debates, one of the most important things that um, you have to enter into them is the right framing. And I think that's just like one of the ways that we um, get past this sort of uh, you know the idea of a dog chasing his tail. Like in order to move forward, the framing of the issue has to be, I think, 
um, correct, and I just think that's a really good way of looking at it. Now, how is all of the kind of action and engagement of for black Democrats, how does all of that shift in the age of Trump? You know, because then on one hand, you're fighting for greater recognition and respect in your own party. Right. And mm-hmm. at the other hand, you're you're fighting someone who I don't think himself fundamentally believes all the crazy things that he says, but the racist ideologues that he's putting around him mm-hmm. who really understand government and want to use it, that's where the danger lies. So like how do you how do you well, balance that? I think it gets a lot easier. I think the messaging actually gets easier because we're we get away from worrying about disagreeing with the first black president of the United States and then your constituents get mad and then should mm. you support this or that? Should you push the Bush tax cut extension or TPP? You know, you don't have yeah. that problem. Yeah. The, the, playing the loyal opposition is actually a very easy thing in, in politics. And quite frankly, Frankly, when we start to hear about privatizing Social Security and taking 22 uh, million people off their health care, those things are not difficult to message if you're a black right. Democrat. Right. If you're right. a black Democrat, you should be out there. I was talking to Cedric Richmond about this yesterday. If you're a black Democrat, you are probably going to be playing the loyal opposition a lot. The two senators, uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, have a special role in this mm-hmm. because the Senate rules do allow for yep. people to de- de- the delay, the run out the clock, That's and right. it's a lot easier to do that than a, than a House member can do. Mm-hmm. So they become a very key fixture in this moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Darren, so w- what do you think black leadership looks like during the age of Trump? Well, I mean, that's something that uh, I think a lot of the, these different leadership positions that we're going to see um, kind of pan out um, is, is going to be really shaped a lot by those folks. You have um, lots of people pushing for, you know, a couple of different people of color to be DNC chair. Like, what does their leadership look like mm-hmm, if, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that's a, a black person who uh, recognizes that we need to keep engaging and sort of change the way the Democratic Party as an institution um, sort of uh, interacts and engages with black people? You have um, the DCCC right now. You have uh, there's lots of leadership positions, I think, that um, in a way they're going to have to sort of re-engage at the grassroots, mm-hmm. um, especially thinking about sort of some of these movements and how and how do you? I think the question becomes like how do you leverage some of the power that um, these people have, especially younger people. That's I think right. that's one of the debates that's happening right now is like how do we sort of get younger people um, more involved and more active, but also not so cynical about politics. You have, uh, and this is kind of a going off on a tangent, but you have this. Uh, voter right now in America who didn't think that Donald Trump could win, mm-hmm. and they weren't really that interested in voting because of that. And so I think that in 2018, you're going to see a shift in some of these grassroots movement spaces where uh, people are going to be, I think, really interested in what they can do um, to make sure that he doesn't have a second term here. Let me give you the last 30 seconds, Avis. Yeah, well, you know, I, I definitely agree with that last point. Uh, you do have a number of people who probably believe that what happened would never happen. And also, they just didn't have a lot of trust in the government, given everything that we've seen around sort of Black Lives Matter and what we see about people getting killed in the street and nothing happening to them. Uh, I, but I do think, as you mentioned, this is a moment in time in which we have a history of being that opposition force. And if ever there's time to be resistant, that time is now. Resist! This is Michelle Jawanda on The Leslie Marshall Show. It's always great to be with my guests. I'll be back, coming to you soon. Thank you so much, and we'll be back.
Hey you, are you ready? Grab your pack, grab your tent, grab your gear. Jump in. We're going on an adventure. In Arizona, there's so much to see, so much to experience. At GCU, adventure is never too far away. Offering over 200 academic programs with a Christian worldview and nestled in the heart of Phoenix, you can earn your degree in fewer than four years and explore everything Arizona has to offer. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash azroadtrip.